92nd Street Y online media is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. This program, The Making of Hudson Yards, features a conversation with Howard Elkis, one of the primary architects behind Hudson Yards, and Dwell Magazine's editor-in-chief, Amanda Dameron. It was recorded on February 4th, 2017, before a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Thank you so much. Good morning. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Amanda Dameron, editor of Dwell. I am so pleased to be here today um, and to be a part of this fine conference. Um, and it's my pleasure to uh, welcome for a conversation about Hudson Yards the esteemed architect Howard Elkis. I think, uh, yeah, and then we'll just kind of sit up here and begin our conversation. Uh, yeah, these are high ones. Okay, uh, thank you. All right. Uh, you know, um, Howard, you have had an incredible career um, as principal of Elkis Manfredi. Um, you have done myriad projects uh, addressing great cultural social needs from mixed use developments to um, high-end retail environments. And this uh, in the role of the architect takes great sensitivity, certainly, to the emotional, physical needs uh, of a large population of people, but it also takes that sensitivity married with a, a really pragmatic understanding of how to address those needs on a programmatic level. Um, can you, can you talk a little bit about uh, your perception of architect as steward of the city? It's a big question. Yes. I thought I'd <laughs> kick it off with a big one. I would say an architect goes about that work humbly. Mm -hmm. uh, it's both a privilege and a responsibility, big responsibility. No building is isolated from its uh, physical and social context. And I look uh, to a larger context for inspiration. It's how these elements are connected that uh, produces the whole. Human needs and aspirations lie at the heart of the design challenge of any building, complex, uh, or city. Uh, it's how how these elements come together, uh, whether it's in a single building uh, or uh, beyond, that uh, dictates the uh, form, the materiality, the aesthetic, uh, which creates place in the human experience. Uh, that's, that's the essence of it all. Uh, I, I have a holistic approach to all of this. Uh, and I owe that uh, to some degree to a former master, Buckminster Fuller, uh, who talked about comprehensive design. Mm. I see design and architecture in that context mm. and the responsibility. Mm. Well said. Um, in our discussions um, leading up to this conversation in front of you today, um, 
as we've been discussing the historical significance of Hudson Yards, you have often cited uh, Rockefeller Center as a shining and lasting um, and important example of um, how a cultural institution can perform such an important role in the built environment. Can you talk a little bit about how you have considered that historical significance and implied it to your role um, in the concept of Hudson Yards? I love Rockefeller Center. <laughs> Rockefeller Center, I don't know whether all of you know this, was originally conceived as the home, the new home of the Metropolitan Opera. And it was John D. Rockefeller who came in and produced a unified vision for this complex, which has been a paradigm of urban development for the world, not just for New York City. Uh, it, uh, it grew uh, to the west and eventually spawned all the development on Sixth Avenue. So it, it, in the end, is quite an enormous place. And the architecture of Raymond Hood is really emblematic of the architecture of the era. It has lasting power. It was the result of a bold vision. Hudson Yards is also the result of a bold vision of another extraordinary entrepreneur of the 21st century, Stephen Ross of the related companies. And what is seen here is the opportunity to create a new neighborhood, just as Rockefeller Center was the core of a new neighborhood. And within it are the opportunities to assemble a group of accomplished architects to produce the physicality of that vision. Mm. What's interesting about these two projects, Rockefeller Center endures. It, it's every bit as exciting and vital part of this city today as it ever was. And that's the aspiration for Hudson Yards. That's, that's our opportunity. Uh, that's the stuff that fuels the spirit of what we're about. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I quickly referenced uh, your background and career. Um, and I, wanna, I want to pursue this as it relates to Hudson Yards as the, the single largest private development in the history of the United States. Um, and with the enormity of that project, I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing um, some of the points and projects in your career that have led you to um, conceptualizing, again, your role at Hudson Yards. Mm -hmm. what, what, what has led you to, to this point mm -hmm. and prepared you? to work on this project? Well, I should say it's an honor to be part of this project because it is extraordinary. It's, it's one of the most important things that's happening in any city in the world today. I'm an urbanist and uh, I'm trained as an engineer first and then an architect. I come from San Francisco and I got stuck in the East Coast, so I've gone the wrong way, Horace Greeley. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, I've, 
I've had the great opportunity of traveling throughout my life. That's been a real inspiration in my career. And I've had the good fortune of working nationally and internationally throughout my career. So uh, it's, it's been a long journey to get to this place. The, uh, the opportunity here uh, combines all of that energy. In the early part of my career, I had the opportunity to design the headquarters for the American Institute of Architects in Washington, so I was a servant of my profession. And uh, later, I had the opportunity in the Philippines, just to cite one example of my foreign work, uh, to master plan part of the waterfront of Manila and also to design the government service insurance system building, which is now the Senate office building of the Philippines. What's important, this was designed in the 70s. It was the world's first major green building. And we've been on that track ever since, and that informs everything we're doing. So uh, in, in my work, uh, I try to be uh, sensitive uh, culturally and socially. And uh, I'm always uh, dealing with the question, how will my design work enhance the in human experience? That's the essence of it all. Now, the track to Hudson Yards is a journey I've taken with an extraordinary individual and partner of Steve Ross, Kenneth Himmel. And our first work was in Boston in the mid-'80s, designing Copley Place which was at its time the largest urban mixed-use development in the country. Uh, and since that time, uh, we've marched across the country. If you know the Peninsula Chicago Hotel block, uh, we designed and then Pacific Place in Seattle, and then uh, in West Palm Beach, uh, City Place, which was a paradigm of new, new urbanism, and uh, after that, Time Warner Center, where we did the uh, podium, which is the prototype for Hudson Yards. It's where all the people gather. It's the heart in terms of retail and dining experience. Uh, the, these projects, uh, and one we're working on right now in Abu Dhabi, which is quite an enormous project, mixed-use project, uh, lead to Hudson Yards. And what my role in Hudson Yards is designing that podium, which is now two and a half times the size, just to give you a scale, you're familiar with Time Warner Center podium. It's two and a half times the size. It's a million square feet. And what's significant to me, is that in this enormous development of Hudson Yards, 17 million feet, okay, $25 billion worth, all to be built at one blast of 10 years. It's incredible. But it's this million feet where the 125,000 people per day who live here, work here, visit here, 
will come together to socialize. So I see it as the interior heart. You know, the physical heart is really that wonderful space with the Thomas Heatherwick sculpture in it. But this is, this is for the people on a daily basis. <clears throat> You're part of a, if, um, a dream team of, of designers and architects and landscape professionals and developers. Can you talk a little bit about that, um, that process of working within the group and perhaps again referencing some of the past projects of your career that um, prepared you for working at that, in that collaborative scale? I'm a product of an extraordinary firm called the Architects Collaborative founded by Walter Gropius and his teaching fellows from Harvard and elsewhere. And I want to cite that because the message of TAC, the Architects Collaborative, now we can look in retrospect, was far beyond architecture. It was revolutionary at the time. And uh, because this was a a profession historically that was always the master profession, not the collaborative profession. But collaboration is the touchstone of our society today and our future and our economy. It's the essence of innovation. So is the city. And my attention has been focused on the city. And we're involved in other projects like Miami World Center where there are also a number of architects. We've been the master planners for over 10 years. It's happening now. But the, what I find fantastic and exciting is the juices that flow uh, between all of these personalities from wherever they come, whatever culture, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, it's, 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 it's exciting, but it's also very productive. And that's what's happening at Hudson Yards. And our collaborators are just not ourselves, but I have to give tremendous credit to Steve Ross, uh, Jay Cross, Ken Himmel, and others at Related. They are the real pros of their profession. I don't think anybody is at that level, or hardly anybody, anywhere at this point. Um, you, earlier, you referenced um, your traveling, and you know you've you've had the uh, the fortune, the good fortune to travel the world, and extensively. And I'm wondering how um, how does a lifetime of travel? Um, how do you apply that to what you hope for Hudson Yards as what it can represent um, for the city and beyond the city for the country and hopefully beyond the country for the world? We can all travel now. Okay? I point to this because, because of all my travel. I've often been embarrassed to refer to things that have inspired me that I've seen because I realize that I've been very privileged and many of the people I deal with haven't had that exposure. But what was fascinating to me, we're doing two major projects in Turkey right now and our clients came to our office in Boston and I was referring to the Taj Mahal 
How many of you have been to the Taj Mahal? I don't know whether you were as shocked as I was, but the world sees the, that building through one view. I love to ask people what they think is around it. Well, it's one of the most staggering architectural complexes and sequences of human experience from the time you're outside until you arrive at the Taj on the platform itself. So I'm talking about this because we're designing uh, a big project, mixed use, that's called Hilltown on the Asian side of Istanbul. And I'm talking about sequence. Now, I'll bring that to Hudson Yards in a minute. But uh, I'm talking about, and they've got their iPads there. And I'm not through talking maybe two or three sentences, and the guy turns his iPad around and faces it to the rest of the people in the room. That's where we are today. So I'm much better off communicating today that experience. Now, I just happen to have an incredible memory of all these trips, I don't know how, and visual memories. I can travel these trips by the day in my memory. And so all of this is my treasure chest of inspiration. And today, because things are happening so quickly, and I might add, our role designing uh, the vertical retail and restaurants at Hudson Yards, uh, we need to be on the cutting edge of that because the retail and dining world is changing so rapidly, hmm. internationally. So if you don't know what's going on in the Far East or in Europe, or, it, it, these ideas can come from anywhere. It's all out there, and you've got to be ahead of it. And I promise you, when you go to this world we're creating, it'll be a new experience. Uh, and it'll be an experience that relates to the West Side. We're not designing on the East Side. You, and this is where you really taste and feel it. You don't feel it in these big structures outside, but it's inside where you can touch, feel, taste, and so forth, that you will have kind of a sophisticated version of the West Side. So uh, that's how it all happens. We're all, we're all a victim of our experience. We're also... Uh, uh, privileged by all of our human relationships and uh, our perception of the world around us. Mm. And in this, uh, you know, just to go on with this idea of um, this hyper-connected visual culture that our phones and our the internet affords us, um, that does kind of uh, harken back to the the great power in collaboration. And I, I suppose I'm extrapolating here on your point here, but. Mm. Doesn't that just make um, projects like these stronger, this ability to share and see and connect in a velocity that we've never before seen? I'm going to point out a person in this audience who's the top of his profession, and we are privileged to co collaborate with him. Let this be the, the uh, emblem of that question. I want Gordon Smith to stand. Okay, that <laughs> hand there. He is the world expert on curtain walls. 
Now imagine, curtain walls is where the world is gone. So this gentleman here uh, is, is the personification of whom we depend on to be our collaborators. If we aspire to be the best, to do the best, we want the best team members. He's the best. <laughs> wonderful. Uh, another important element that we've discussed, um, just in general terms, have we been, as we've been discussing, good architecture, good design, lasting, um, lasting statements in the built environment, um, again and again, we've, we've kind of zeroed in on the notion of flexibility and its inherent role in, in lasting architecture. And um, we've discussed how, uh, we've, ex we've discussed examples of um, bad examples that didn't incorporate flexibility and therefore haven't aged well. And then we've also approached the concept of flexibility as it relates to your conception, again, for not only this project, for, for all of the projects. Can you talk a little bit about, um, about flexibility and its relation to good design? Uh, that is a fantastic question. Oh, thank you. Because in this rapidly changing world, you know, when things moved at a snail's pace, you know, the pyramids still last, right? <laughs> but their context stayed the same for centuries, right? Art context is changing all the time. And it isn't just the physical context. It's, it's the whole new horizon of innovation where the car will take a secondary place uh, with robots, uh, with self-driving cars, with segways, with the value of real estate in in a densification age where people are moving back to the cities now in a humongous way. Michael Bloomberg says another million people in Manhattan. I mean, this is the way. So every piece of real estate today is more valuable. It's, it's uh, more costly to live here. We have to deal with that social phenomenon that's mm -hmm. happening, which is one of the most serious things we face as urbanists today. How do we design an urban environment that serves all? Because if we don't, uh, we are on a bad path. So flexibility, it's interesting, the question, because I'm taking it to another context besides the building and the architecture. We are designing a new city outside of Boston right now that you're going to hear about. And it's a smart city. It's the city of the future. And we are accounting for all of those elements that require flexibility in what they call future-proofing. Mm. And this concept of future-proofing, is this something that you would have discussed early in your career? Never. <laughs> I mean, whoever heard of the word? Right, right. I mean, all these little coined words today. You know, there'll be another word for it tomorrow. I'll tell, I can sure. assure you. But it's important, certainly, to to frame the context of any any built structure. Uh, 
you're programming it for the future. You want it to last like Rockefeller Center that still remains an emblem of our city, um, something to aspire to, certainly. You hit the jackpot. Quality lasts. And we've seen that through these recessions where the value of buildings and their marketability, if they aren't built with design quality in mind. Uh, today, sustainability is a big deal, okay? It's finally come of age throughout our culture and internationally. And if you don't design a sustainable built building, first of all, your sales are down, the value of what you're creating is down, it's now in the marketplace just like good design is. I, I attribute where we are in design to Frank Gehry, who popularized it, and to Steve Jobs, who, who took it to another dimension as far as product design and everything else. And he was the creature of living in a modern house called the Eichler House. Uh, out in the Bay Area. So flat slab, glass, flat roof, okay? Just look at the iPads and those mm -hmm. things. I think mm -hmm. he was influenced, <laughs> anyway. Um, you know, I wanna talk a little bit again about, um, you know, often in our conversations, you've referred to your phone to show images to, um, to solidify your points by sharing a visual, um, example uh, for places that I haven't had the opportunity to see myself. And it's interesting to me that we are at a point in culture in which um, we are so connected uh, in the digital realm, but we have fewer and fewer um, opportunities for physical proximity. And so I would imagine that when you are working on the scale that you are with Hudson Yards and other projects, programming the essential interaction that we need socially, culturally, um, it's, there, there has to be kind of a tension between our tendencies now to retreat behind the digital wall of this connectedness that is not uh, tangible any longer, but yet to have a, a space in a city in which people are interacting and sharing space, um, these are the most essential um, moves that I would imagine an architect can make in this age. No question. Uh, my, my daughter, uh, I don't know whether she coined it, but she talks about this in the social context as being alone together. Yeah. And what we need to do is to break down that barrier. So this, it's incumbent on us to produce an experience which rivals this or compliments it. This isn't going to be out of our lives. <laughs> Ken Himmel, who I spoke about, sent me an email last Saturday morning, and he called me late in the afternoon. I decided, I've had enough of this. You know, my clients now expect us 24-7. Yes. And so people are getting emails from me at 2.30 in the morning. <laughs> I, I was first embarrassed about it because that was the only time I could get to it, but now it's the norm. Mm. You know, we're living 24-7. But 
wherever we are hibernating, in this, our office, in our home, and so forth. That's why I say that what we're designing at Hudson Yards is so important because it is the place where all these people lodged in all those towers come together with all those people that are visiting mm. uh, for a social experience. Mm. So, I mean, I, we all go to restaurants and you see that table over there, no conversation, everybody's got one of those things out. So I think we need a new decorum as to how we dine together. <laughs> that's, a, that's definitely a larger conversation too. Um, and you know, we're gonna continue talking, but we will, we will have an opportunity for questions from the audience um, eventually. But I wanna continue talking a little bit about this and particularly as it relates to New York, um, you know, why this is such a vital uh, example of a city, certainly in this country. You see other major cities in the U.S. and other cities in which we are so much more reliant upon our, our cars, our personal space in which we are uh, traveling together but completely concealed in our own bubbles. Here, you walk the, the streets, you take the subway, um, you have the opportunity to, again, have this essential human interaction that, that we must have for a, a strong, healthy community. And that's why, again, it is such an incredible opportunity. It's momentous, not only because of its size, but for what it can mean for the future, for the future of city living. Uh, big, big deal. Okay, I love New York. It's the paradigm I use everywhere. Because on street, it's alive. You know, every block has most of what you want, it seems. And yet, in this fabric, our lodge, coming here with Severio Mancini this, you know, this morning, uh, we drove by the armory, and he's telling me about having created the Globe Theater in the armory. I mean, the cultural aspect of New York is second to none. And I don't lodge that all inside. It's in the park, it's everywhere. It's on the streets, and the diversity of the population is just fantastic. When I started working in Miami over 10 years ago, I used to call it the, the biggest city I knew that wasn't a city because there's no pedestrian life. And we actually joined forces with the head of planning and the mayor to help create Miami 21, which essentially was to replicate New York. Hmm. So this, this is a fabulous model. Now, you've mentioned the car. This is a disaster in this city. If you're in a car, you know, Every year I come here, the trip out of the west side to LaGuardia lengthens, lengthens. Now it's all, you know, it's longer to get through cross Manhattan than it is to get to LaGuardia, regardless of the time of day. And that has to be addressed. Mm. And I think new modes of transportation, I think self-driving shuttles and so forth, the beauty of, of technology is that we can anticipate traffic today, we can control the traffic lights, you know, the whole management of flow. Mm. Now, I deal with flow all the time, 
if you think about Time Warner Center and how it ties in with the city, it's an example of what we're doing at Hudson Yard. We take 59th Street right into the building. The sidewalks become the vertical sidewalks. That's the flow, it's natural. And the gallery that mimics Hudson Cir Circle uh, actually mirrors the natural flow of people moving from one side to the other. Now, just to say how Rock Center uh, is replicated in a small way in Time Warner Center, look what Time Warner Center did. Retail, east side, nothing over there. Nordstrom's, look what's happening around us today. And that combined with this powerhouse of culture, uh, Lincoln Center and so forth. So New York has these neighborhoods. It's fabulous. Each neighborhood, Don Fisher, the Gap, we went out to see him. And I'd heard that there were 40 Gap stores in New York. And he said, over 100. <laughs> All little neighborhoods, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I do, I do want to open it up in case there are questions from the audience. I, I do invite you. Um, and, you know, I, I think these microphones work, so I'm just going to kind of Phil Donahue it over here. I'm going to go back here first, and I'll come back to you. Yeah, I think so. Try it. Um, Mr. Elkis, given the million-dollar, uh, the, the million-square-feet of real estate space and the cost of new construction, what are the odds that you'll be able to attract retailers who aren't the same old, same old that you see everywhere you go? Will it be a unique experience in Hudson Yards, to some extent? Love the question. It's so val valid. One of the big problems is the credit worthiness of tenants. I think restaurants, there's an 85% failure rate in restaurants. Talk about the future, okay? How, the flexibility. You have to design an armature to deal with flexibility. And what's happening now, there's a revolution going on in retail, as you know. Uh, Macy's, imagine what Macy's is doing. Closing 200 stores. What does that mean? The developers who own the malls are giving them back to the banks. I mean, you saw that in the Wall Street Journal the other day. I mean, it's a fundamental problem. Now, going back to your specific question, retailers, because of that environment, have to keep reinventing themselves. Number one, we're gonna have a lot of familiar names and they're gonna be mid-range to ultra-luxury. Okay, that's our market. But we're also going to create space in the building where new designers can come. Remember the foreign shops in Paris where you went and all those great, exciting designs that you find in the meatpacking district and elsewhere in New York? We want to have that aspect too. So from a restaurant point of view, I think you're going to recognize probably all of the names. But this is going to be their signature moment. That's what Hudson Yards is, is producing here, is the 
is the necessity that you've got to be on top of your game. So Thomas Keller, for example, has got a designer who did the Corinthian Hotel, if any of you have been in London, absolutely magnificent, designing what Ken Himmel says will be the most beautiful restaurant in New York. So here's, here's a familiar name, but rising to a new, new occasion kind of thing. So we're going to have a balance of that kind of thing. And in time, I will tell you, when we started designing this, we thought we had to have a department store. And we tried to push Nordstrom's in, and Neiman Marcus. And everybody wanted to be on the ground, which meant that the valuable, most valuable real estate was being taken up by this big creature. Well, as you know, Neiman Marcus did come. Because of the exciting concept of this whole million square feet and what's going on at Hudson Yards and that part of the city now, Neiman's, for the first time, is going up above us. So we got seven levels. They start on level five, six, and seven. Ultra luxury up there. Ultra luxury is always down on the ground. That's the most valuable real estate. So. We're really inverting this paradigm. Even in San Francisco Center, where Nordstrom one time put their department store on top, doesn't have the concept that we have. Because at that fifth level, there will be some of the top signature restaurants in Manhattan. And on the sixth level, they're actually coming outside, facing the Heatherwick sculpture and this fantastic park space two restaurants outside with terraces. What we've done, everywhere we are, in, in, basically, we come in from 30th and 10th, 33rd and 10th, from the park space, and from the seventh line, seven line that comes under the North Tower into our space and so forth. This is a crossroad. That's what we've done. I, I used to call it interior urban design. This thing has to fit into the city. And when you walk through this project, it, we have spaces that go up seven levels, four levels, three levels, and so forth. Intentionally, when you walk the streets of that part of the city, you're in different kinds of spaces, widths of streets, heights of buildings, and so forth. So in order to create the richness that's out in the city, you can never quite do it, but the, the sense of it, that's what dictates. And the materiality will be the materiality of the west side, whether it's black iron, dark wood, uh, stone floors. Uh, you know, we, we spent a lot of time. My god, how many times did we go through this exercise to get that right? But I think we have it. And it'll be an exciting new experience. But the point is, when you're inside, everywhere we can, we're opening up the outside. So, you know, we're, but again, back to your point, it's the essence of how do you make this unique? And to add to your point, a unique experience. Hmm. That's what 
Um, I, I want to move to the next yep. question because we're quickly running out of time, and I think a lot of people have some questions, but please. I'll be short. Okay. Sure. <laughs> Picking up on your design, yeah. bringing people together, the Heatherwick sculpture is, is something that is really unique. They talked yesterday about being a Christmas tree. But the actual physicality of it is my understanding with the population getting older and more people on walkers and in wheelchairs and more young people living here with strollers, to put something in that requires steps to be able to access it seems strange to me, rather than having a little handle, you know, accessible elevator. So I wanted you to address that. And the other part was that the, uh, especially having somebody in here as an expert about facades, the city's getting, as, over time, louder because of all the glass reverberating and hotter because the sun's reflecting and we're losing our masonry building. So it's, it's an interesting way to look at building. Absolutely. Great question. That last point is very interesting, not solved. Uh, as far as the Heatherwick sculpture is concerned, there is an elevator. You don't see it in all the pictures, but there's an elevator. So a handicapped person can go to the top faster than anybody else. And that'll hold over a 1,000 people. It's 150 feet high. And when we first saw it, imagine we're thinking about looking out on this beautiful space and so forth, and all of a sudden this thing is in our face. But it's very interesting. I mean, if you look at New York, uh, most of the city is looking into somebody else's face. It's alive. You know, you can pull a shade down or not and so forth. But imagine sitting in these restaurants and looking out. It's going to be unbelievable. And just imagine the programming that will go on. Think of Fashion Week in New York. Think of performance in New York with the culture shed next door and so forth. So we are full of elevators all through at the key access points and so forth in this seven-story picture. So a handicapped person can interface with that sculpture uh, at every level without going there to begin with. I, I think we have time for one more question, yeah. but I think that's an incredibly important point that you bring up about inclusive design and how when we're talking about something that's lasting and, and uh, valuable, I mean, these are the essential questions we must ask. So I thank you for that. I'm going to walk back over here for our last question. And by the way, I'm here, and I'd be happy to answer anybody's question after this session if you want. Thank you. I just wanted to know about your further visual strategy for the integration of public art into this huge complex. I know we're start, you're starting with 180 million on one piece. Are there going to be like the fourth plinth in London, something where there's, or Doris Friedman Plaza, something with rotating artwork commissioning? Everything you can imagine. This is a tabula rasa. And art is now. Never before has art played so importantly in a culture as it will in the future. Imagine when we don't have jobs for everybody. It's going to be culture that's going to absorb a lot of people and, and education accordingly. It's a huge business. And imagine art 
in all its forms in Hudson Yards. And it will penetrate all of these buildings. You know, uh, you see the Boteros in, and we had one time a gallery that sold art and so forth, all of that, and then some. Well, uh, with that, I think we have to end. But, you know, I, I do want to say again that I have so enjoyed not only this conversation, but the many that we've had leading up to it, because you and I both share um, a great respect for optimism, and optimism being an essential ingredient for good work to be done. So I want to thank you so much again for being here and for sharing with us your point of view, Howard. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this 92Y program. For more information, visit 92Y.org. This program is copyright 2017 by the 92nd Street Young Men's and Young Women's Hebrew Association.